Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 188, and I'm talking with Jenny Simpson. Really excited about this interview with Jenny. She's been on my list of people that I've wanted to interview for quite a while, and we finally made it happen. So we talked for quite a long time. We got along really well, and I just felt like we could have gone on and on and on. If you don't know Jenny Simpson, she's kind of the queen of the 1500 meters on the track. She's sponsored by New Balance. She has a bronze medal from the 2016 Olympics in Rio in the 1500. And she also has a gold medal from the 2011 World Championships and two silver medals from the 2013 and 2017 World Championships. In this episode, Jenny shares with us the ups and downs of her career, pieces that maybe as someone who follows the sport, we might not have known even happened because we see all the big shiny moments and we talk about that in this episode. I also ask her lots of fun questions about her husband who just ran the grandma's marathon. She's been nursing him coming off of that race and I loved hearing her talk about how he's a part of the running space and how excited she is he's going to be that he's going to be running in the Olympic trials and the marathon this coming February and I kind of want to be friends with them. Uh, Jenny was kind enough to stay on the line for an extra, I think it was like 15 or 20 minutes for Patreon. And if you support the show over on Patreon, you can hear a more in-depth conversation. Uh, We talk about wanting to have a family as a professional runner and that piece on Patreon and so much more. So head over to Patreon, support the show at as little as three or $5 a month and you can get access to extended conversations with people like Jenny Simpson. I also have extended conversations with Kara Goucher, Shalane Flanagan, Jordan Hesse, and returning guest episodes from people like Laura Anderson, Charlie Watson, Jen Bigham. And then there's the monthly episode over there with my husband, Glenn. We do a monthly episode where we just kind of give life updates and talk about what's going on in our world. Again, that's patreon.com slash lindsayhine where you can find access to that extra content. All right. I want to tell you before we get started that this fall across seven cities in Detroit, Twin Cities, New England, Seattle, Philadelphia, San Diego, and Dallas, you can help join the fight against breast cancer at the Susan G. Komen three-day. Breast cancer research and funding is so important in my own life. In 2013, I found out Actually, I was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation, so I've been able to take preventative measures and actually elected to have a prophylactic mastectomy that year, and I'm able to get preventative screenings on a regular basis, and thankfully, because of the funding to important research, I'm a really fortunate person that I was able to know those details. So you can join this fight and do something meaningful this fall. You walk 60 miles in three days, and you can grab a couple friends and do it. The more the merrier. If you go to the3day.org, you can learn more and register. Again, that's the three, that's the number three day.org. All right, friends, let's enjoy this conversation with Jenny Simpson. Today on the podcast, we have Jenny Simpson. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Really excited to chat with you. You have been on my list for quite some time and it's finally happening. Yay. Yeah. No, thanks for connecting. I'm it's, it's overdue. I should have made this happen a long time ago. Well, you know, it's funny. I messaged, I emailed your agent, like 
it's crazy how fast time goes, but I think it was like two years ago. And then I checked in a year later and you know what I mean? It's like, I always look back on these emails and I'm like, how has it been literally eight months since I, you know, followed up with this? I totally agree. And I think we're all guilty that you can look in your email and see those emails that you put off because they were really important and you wanted to give it more time. And then suddenly the really important thing is now aged out two years and you're like, ah, how am I ever going to respond to this now? Yeah, (laughs) totally. So, okay. You're right now you're nursing your husband right now. He just ran grandma's (laughs) marathon. So you get to be the one taking care of the, the athlete. What's going on at your house? Yeah, it's this beautiful, sunny, perfect boulder day. And my husband is curled up on the couch. He's called in for a sick day. Uh, He just uh, finished running grandma's marathon over the weekend. And he did awesome. It was a great day for a lot of people. Not not his very best day, but he still had a good day. Um, And then got on a plane and came home to me. And now, oh, I'm like, this is uh, maybe a view into my far future, taking (laughs) care of this like poor crippled man (laughs) that needs help. Uh, Earlier in the day, I was was, uh, making him a smoothie and brought it over to the couch where he was all curled up. And I'm like, you know, putting the straw in and like putting it up to his face. And I'm like, okay, we've taken this too far. (laughs) (laughs) You're really nursing us. How many marathons has he ran? I think this one was number 13 or 14. So he's, he's run quite a few now. Yeah. I was looking up the times because I wanted to like see what he ran before we had this conversation. I can't believe how many, how fast the field is at grandma's. Yeah. And this year it was really, it was really good. The weather was great. I think they had a bit of a tailwind. Um, and a lot of people had just really awesome days, but yeah, it was a, it was definitely a fast day for a lot of people. Yeah. Cause didn't he run like a two, was it 222 or 224? He ran 224 this year and man, he's so fit and his workouts were going so well. Um, this is coming off of last year at CIM where he ran 218. Was that his PR? Um, yeah, yeah, by a lot. So he was really hoping to have another 218 day. Um, but as I told him immediately after the race, like he's doing great, everything's going well, but there's very few people that are working 40 hours a week and we're in Africa on Monday. Like he's doing pretty good considering how many other things out in the world he's tackling at the exact same time. Uh, following me around on my career, he was with me out at, um, the last two diamond league races. Okay. That's when um, he was in Africa. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and it was funny because coming into this training block, like we knew that these, um, races of mine were coming up, uh, and we're going to, you know, conflict with his training, uh, and his tapering for, for his race. But He's just an incredible support of mine. And I think also because we knew he had the trial standard from CIM, it was a little bit less pressure um, at grandma's. And so he, he wanted to try to do both. And I think it kind of bit him in the butt uh, a little bit the last 5K of his marathon. He was, he was really solid through 20 or 21 miles. Um, but man, just all that extra travel uh, and, and his work schedule and stuff. I think it was just, it was hard to hold on. Yeah. So he's running the trials. Yeah. Yeah. He qualified at CAM and then yeah, February 29th in Atlanta. Uh, he's gonna, he's gonna race the trials. Will you be there? I would not miss it. I will definitely be there. Yeah. To see him like achieve that and accomplish that. Um, yeah, he's going to have to put up with me (laughs) there being super excited. Did he run shorter distances? Like, was he a college athlete? What did that look like? 
Yeah, so he ran Division Two at Truman State in Missouri. Okay. And uh, was a good athlete. He was a fine arts major, so he kind of, I, I think he kind of straddled two worlds, <laughs> being in sports and being a, a fine arts student. Um, and he was, he was good, and he was on a really good high school cross-country team that um, vied for state championships and stuff. So, um, so he always took running somewhat seriously, although I do think – he would give me permission to say that when he moved to Boulder and we met, uh, it was a seriousness of running at another level that he never <laughs> experienced. So, uh, so yeah, I, I gave him kind of another, another training bump in his life and, and now he's marathoning really well. Yeah. How did you guys meet? Oh man, that's That could be a whole nother hour long <laughs> podcast. <laughs> But the, the long story short is he moved out here for, uh, for a contract job. Uh, he's a graphic designer and he came out here for work. And one thing I really admire about his, um, and about one of his life choices and something that now I, I tell other young people to do is he graduated from college and I think his mom gave him this advice, like look on the map of the United States and where somewhere that you would like to live at some point in your life and apply for jobs there. And so, um, yeah, so he applied for a job in Boulder, Colorado, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and a few other places, um, and got a job in Boulder and just came out here because he thought I'd like to live there at some point in my life. I'd like to see what it's like. Um, and, and along the way he met me here, um, because he was running in similar circles. He uh, visited my church. And so we met in a couple of different, you know, a couple of different contexts. Um, But yeah, he met me and now he's not allowed to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, where does his mom live? So his parents uh, both live in Kansas City, Missouri. He grew up uh, in Liberty, Missouri. See, I love that his mom told him to do that because I feel like a lot of moms are like, don't leave me. Like, I, you know, like... Your heart wants yeah. your kid to travel and do things, but your heart also is like, but I want you to be near me. So I think that's really cool that she gave him that. Yeah. Not permission, like he needed permission, but just like that dream. Oh, totally. Encouraged him to get out and stretch his wings. And um, I think that all three of her kids are really a testament to her uh, kind of spirit of getting them out there and challenging them to see what they can make of themselves because all three are really interesting, really curious, really successful people. His sister is, um, an actor in New York city and, um, his brother is a lawyer in Nashville, Tennessee. So really, uh, amazing, successful, high bar achievers (laughs) across the whole family. Yeah. And she has really cool places to visit Nashville, Boulder, and New York city. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. She's, she's done pretty well. But the one other funny story with that is that, uh, rumor is that she told him, to leave, you know, and, and, you know, leave, experience other places, meet other people. Um, cause she didn't want him to marry a, a, a farm girl from Iowa <laughs> and he moved to, he moved to Boulder, Colorado. And, uh, I'm a, a daughter of two farm families from Iowa. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you grew up in Florida, but then you moved to Iowa, right? So I was born in Iowa. Yeah. And, and both sets of my grandparents, uh, one set lived in Spencer and had a farm property out there. And then the other set lived in, uh, lived in Storm Lake. And, uh, so I, yeah, all my holidays and childhood memories are, are from Iowa 
Um, but yeah, but I spent high school and, and largely grew up in Florida. Then you went to Florida. I'm backwards. Yeah. Iowa to no, Florida, that's right. Florida to Iowa. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious that she ran yeah. and she randomly said Iowa. Like who says Iowa? That's so I know funny. he, he met his Iowa farm girl out in, in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> What's up with you, Iowa gals being so fast. We've got you and Shelby Houlihan from Iowa. I know it's so exciting. And, um, uh, Lisa Yule was a really great Iowa woman, yeah. uh, ran really fast for Iowa state and beyond. And yeah, Iowa has some, some good running genes in that state for sure. Well, speaking of Iowa, then I know you've, I know you broke, well, you broke the two mile American record at the Drake relays. Do you like, do you try to get back there as much as you can for that race? Yeah. So I'm often asked why, <laughs> why I've gone to Drake so many times and I really do love it. I, it's, it's a little, it's a combination of things at this point, but, um, it really started because, um, my grandmother who's still to this day, she and my grandfather are in their nineties and they're just crushing life doing really well. They still live in their own home and drive themselves around, um, and drive to and from the farm. They're, they're still in Spencer, Iowa. And so, um, my grandmother kind of pressured me all the time. My, my grandfather's a Drake alum. He got a degree there. And, uh, and so they really pressured me to race there as often as possible because it was a close drive, you know, it's an easy race for them to come to. And, uh, it's, it's hard, especially as you become a pro increasingly, my races are in Europe and in Asia and kind of all around the world. And so the domestic opportunities, even when they do exist, they're often on the coast. And so to be able to race in Iowa, it was like, why wouldn't you come here so we could see you? (laughs) And so it kind of started out a little bit as a guilt trip. Uh, And then I really grown this incredible affection for um, the crowd at Drake and the organization and the people that have, um, you know, worked with me over the years, putting on the races there. Um, And Hy-Vee has been an incredible support to the sport out there in the Midwest. And so um, yeah, I, I now go for so many more reasons than just the guilt trip, but I'm so glad my grandmother kind of helped kick that off. Yeah. Not you, but like, that is such a big incentive. Like your 90 some year old grandparents are not going to get on a plane and follow you to your races yeah. anymore. Um, yeah. I know the director there now, Blake Bolden, mm-hmm. and he, he used to be the executive the executive director here at the monumental marathon. I live in Indianapolis and he is a great guy. So I'm like, I was so excited when he took over that position. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of previous contact with him before he took over, but he's just been, uh, a really, I mean, from what I have experienced and what I can tell a really great fit out there. And, um, I really admire his desire to think creatively how to really elevate the sport Um, one of the things that's really special about the Drake relays is that it's an opportunity for someone like me, who's a professional to come in and in one weekend you have high schoolers, you have collegians, you have professionals. And to me, especially maybe at this point in my career, uh, I, that's so special to be in an environment where it's not just high schoolers or college, um, students taking some time to come watch a race, but I'm racing on the same track on the same weekend that they're feeling the pressure and they're feeling um, the race nerves and stuff. And so I think kind of sharing that experience with that younger crowd, um, it shortens that gap between the idea of I'm me and Jenny's this far off professional person doing something different. It makes our worlds a lot closer. 
Um, and so I think what the Drake relays do, having everyone kind of racing on the same weekend is special. And uh, I'm going to try to be a part of it as long as I can. Yeah, it seems like in the running space, um, I feel like professional athletes like yourself try, most of you try to do a good job doing that, like bridging that gap. And I know you do work with the New York Roadrunners. You work with their youth programs. And what's your message to those kids? Like what I, I like it when to hear you talk about like them not seeing you as just this like far off creature that's, you know, winning yeah. gold medals. Like what's your message to them when they're you see them dreaming to kind of maybe be someone like you one day? Yeah, I gosh, there's so much that you hope that you can in some small way represent over time. And so it's hard to imagine trying to you know, get that down to some simple message, but, um, especially having been born in Iowa, one of the really special things that I feel like I'm able to say when I tow the line or cross the finish line of the Drake relays is to all those kids sitting in that stand. It's like, I'm, no one looked at me when I was 12 or 17 and said, you're going to be a great Olympic athlete someday. Um, there's nothing more special about me than there is special about every single little girl and every single little boy sitting, um, in, in those stands born in Iowa, had a good family, good schools and a PE teacher that said, Jenny has a lot of energy out on the playground. You should maybe get her involved in our after school running program. And so my story is, I think relatable because it's not, more star studded than that. It's, it's just kind of progressing through, uh, elementary school to middle school, to high school, to college, and just taking the coaches that were set there in front of me. Um, and, and just trying to be the best that I could in every, in every arena. Um, and, and yeah, when I can then be at the highest arena and say, I was just like you 15, 20 years ago, I, I really hope that they can see that and believe it. Did you ever have a moment in your career from once you realized, Hey, I'm pretty good at this thing to where you are now at the world stage. Did you ever have a season or time when you struggled mentally to own what you actually were capable of? Um, yeah, I definitely, I mean, there's, I've been doing this long enough. I, I doubt there's, <laughs> there's few, uh, moments of ego or moments of doubt that haven't crossed through my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there's certainly times in my career that were moments and then times in my career that were kind of longer stretches where I didn't really know where this was going and who exactly I was, I was trying to be in a certain you know, difficult circumstance, but, um, one of them that really stands out, that's just super obvious, um, is when I, oh my gosh, I worked so hard and my season was going so well in 2015. And, um, I finally make it, you know, I, I make it to the world championships. I go through the first round, I go through the most nerve wracking semifinal and I make it to the final and I'm going around and I mean, I know I'm in the best shape I've ever been in my entire life and I'm so excited um, to finally be in the final and really believe maybe I can medal again. And about two laps in, somebody accidentally stepped on my shoe 
and um, and I was effectively taken out of the race at that point. Mm. And I remember, you know, I, I I'm I'm now kind of a I've I've been on the circuit for a while. I'm a more mature athlete. I'm not a young kid, but I remember taking some time to walk around the track after the race was over to go get my shoe. And I did it on purpose to give myself a minute to kind of collect myself before I went in immediately to the media area. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking around and there's so many things that I could say about that particular day, but I remember thinking, this is familiar. Like I've been here before. And in, in different times in my career, and especially, you know, those public moments where things don't go well, um, I didn't. I didn't do well my senior year in cross country. You know, I was supposed to win the national title, be the hero, win by a lot, and I was 163rd. And it didn't it didn't turn out the way the fairy tale ending it was supposed to be. In 2012, I went into the Olympic Games as the reigning um, world champion, and I didn't make the final. And you just get better at it. You get better at saying not every day is luck going to swing your way or is all of your, your plans and your hard work going to work out. And so I don't really know what, what people are supposed to do with that exact story, but I just remember walking and picking up my shoe and thinking, instead of it being this really horrible one single moment, I just felt like, you know, you get better at this because it's, it's not always easy and it's not always the top of the podium and, uh, and I'll, I'll be okay. I'll survive this. And I have, and I've gone on to metal since then. Yeah, I love that you just told that story because I'm sitting here with notes in front of me with all of your medals listed, you know, and we, it's like Instagram, you know, like we see the highlight reel, not that someone like you doesn't post about those moments, but yeah. like we remember the medals. And so to hear you talk about that, like I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, she got 163rd her senior year in cross country. Like (laughs) I didn't, I don't know that. And I've sat here and done research on you. So, um, I think it's easy to forget those things when you're not the one living the moment. Yeah. I, the podium moments and not just literal podium moments, but also those moments where, you know, like I've really overcome and I've done something really well. Those are so special and they should be celebrated and enjoyed and, um, and savored, you know, because they are really special and that should be a permanent part of who you are when you achieve at that level. But I never feel too far away from knowing that I'm also small. And I think that's a good thing. I think in, in a world where attention and and social media and fame, you know, can be really ephemeral. I think it's, I think it's a, a, an asset. I think it's a value added to, to have that understanding that in the context of the entire world, what you're doing is, is important and it's significant and it should have purpose, but you're also small. I love that. I love that so much. And I, I remember hearing you talk to Carrie Tolfson about this topic in a way when you guys were talking about your sister being deployed and you were kind of talking about your like attachment to that, but also detachment in a way that says like, I can look at these big, heavy, scary things that are happening, but like, I can't like diminish what I'm doing too, because that's important too. I love that message. 
Yeah, it's, I was just sharing this with somebody that's close to me that I care about and saying, racing has to be about execution. It's so tempting to assign a higher purpose to it. And you just shouldn't. Mm, um, Because, you know, you work so hard, and you deserve for that work to be, to be put on display. And, and I, one of the things that I like to say, and this probably puts it too simply, but I never stand on the starting line hoping for a miracle. I stand on the starting line saying, I hope all of my hard work adds up and, and shows up today. And that's, that's, I think that's a more grounded way to approach a race is, is you say, I've done the work I've, I've sacrificed what I should have maybe at times more than I should have. Uh, and, and I just want that to show up today. I don't, I don't need, uh, I don't need a miracle. You, when you see the videos of you guys at the start line and you, you look very focused, but relaxed and ready to go. What are your thoughts? Are you nervous? Are you like, I'm an animal. I can do what I, you know, have trained to do. What is going on in your head? Like when you just broke four, you know, recently in, in Morocco. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's a lifetime lived in those seconds standing on the starting (laughs) line. Um, There's so many things and, and at different times, there's different weird things that come to your mind, but I do, I do have this really funny memory of uh, me and my coach, um, I, I have two coaches, um, Heather Burroughs and Mark Wetmore, and almost always one of them travels to my race and then the other one stays home. And so they split duties often. Um, and I don't even remember what race it was, but it was early on in, in my career, early ish on in my professional career, um, where Mark was at home. And after the race was over, he said to me gently, but he said to me, you might want to consider when you're standing on the starting line, like smile or, (laughs) or do nothing. He said, you look like you're so petrified. Like you look miserable being there. Just try to not look miserable (laughs) being there. And I remember thinking that was so funny, kind of outside of, um, outside of the, the pressure and the scariness of it, you know, being on the other side of the race from that. Uh, what a funny thing, you know, we work so hard and then we stand on the starting line and everybody's terrified, you know, (laughs) anyone that doesn't look terrified is just a better actor than the person, uh, standing next to them. So we're all, we're all nervous and we're all frightened, um, to some varying degree. But so that's kind of what I think about when I stand there is I think, and, and in a way I've kind of internalized it, I think in a really positive way, because I stand there and I always kind of have this moment where I think about, whoever, whether it's Heather or Mark watching at home and thinking, okay, send them a, a facial kind of message <laughs> that I'm actually happy to be here. Uh, and then in, in, in a way, like I said, internalizing that, it kind of reminds me like, I am happy to be here. Like, this is always scary for me. I'm always nervous. Um, but, but those nerves turn out to be really useful. And underneath that thin layer um, of, of scariness, I've worked really hard and, and I was working for this. Yeah, I was watching your faces at the beginning of oh, what video clip? I think it was the Fifth Avenue Mile 2018. You won. Colin <laughs> Quigley got second. And I was looking at your faces, and I feel like Colin Quigley was just like straight chilling, and everybody else did look yeah. a little bit more intense. 
Yeah, you know, Fifth Avenue might be an exception okay. to the rule. I might not be as like uh, channeling the happy fake energy, <laughs> um, just because. Just because Fifth Avenue for me is always the last race of the year. Uh, up until if I race it this year, you know, it's going to be smack in the middle. This whole schedule this year is strange, but. Um, every, every year up until now, it's been my last race of the season. And so, man, I, I am, it is kind of like being a wild animal on the starting line. And I think this is the last mile of everything Mm. I've done this year. And I want this mile to be really good. Um, and it's funny because I do think people come to the very end of the season, um, with kind of goals having been met or not met, you know, disappointment or relief that it's nearly over. You know, I think that starting line is really different um, than some of the ones at the beginning in the middle of the season. But for me, I always think like, leave it all out. This is the last mile. Like I'm not even cooling down when this is over. <laughs> uh, and, and that always is really uh, special and really motivating to me. Yeah, I didn't even realize until I watched the video clip that you guys have to run uphill during the mile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fifth like, Ave is really torture. different. <laughs> yeah, because we've been running a certain pace on the track all season long. Yeah. And then you switch shoes, you go on the road, and you're on you're on a terrain. Like, the track is not a terrain, you know? And even though you think... Um, oh, the road, it's, it's, you know, it's still a wide paved road. Um, when you're running that fast, every tiny little, um, divot in the road is, is so much more significant, you know, because, because you're running so hard and you, you're on the ground for such a small little fraction of a moment. And so, um, yeah, it's, it feels really wild and feels really unsteady compared to being in spikes on the track all year long. Yeah. Okay. So you just ran the sub four in a stadium you've never ran in. Mm-hmm. What's, what's happening next? And that's, we should mention, and you know, people have maybe seen this on social media that, that, um, that your first sub four was ran in 2009. So now you've got this decade span. Where are you going yeah. next this season? So my, um, my next race will be the U S championship. So I came home from that race in Rabat, Morocco, um, where I ran my 10th sub four of my career, which I'm really, really proud of. Um, and I didn't know until I was, I was finished and I called my coach and Heather told me that she's like, do you realize this is the 10th time you've run under four minutes? So that felt really special, um, to hear from her, but now I am home in Boulder and, um, I train, now for about four weeks getting ready for the U.S. championships. And um, between now and then will be the prefunting classic. And I'll be um, I'll be watching that closely because there's going to be a really big 15 there. And it'll be really interesting to see how a lot of my American competition stacks up uh, while while I'm going to be home getting ready for the U.S. championships. Oh, I love watching the prefontaine classic. Uh, what who who are you eyeing right now for the 15? Like who are some of get throw out some like highly competitive American 1500 meter runners that you're looking at? Well, honestly, the person I'm going to be watching the most closely is my teammate, Danny Jones. She's a fellow buff and she's here and I'm training with her and she's, uh, so 
wise ahead of her years, both racing wise and as, as a human, uh, she's a really strong, incredible young woman. Um, but she's so young in her career and I'm so excited for her. And, um, How old I, is she? she is, oh gosh, maybe 22 years old. Oh, she's, wow. uh, yeah. Like so Mama she Bear. still has, yeah, she still has a year left in school as a Buffalo. Um, and, and I just, I just see so much of what I experienced uh, in college right there on the threshold for her. Um, and as well as some other, some other women at the, uh, in, within the CU program, but specifically Danny, cause she's getting ready to run the 15. Uh, and I ran Prefontaine when I was in college, which was really, really special and this, uh, really big moment in my career. And so, um, so yeah, so even though I'm going to be scoping out some of the competition I'm going to be eyes fixed on Danny, really cheering for her. Oh, I love that. Oh, so let's talk about that, though, because you're talking about her college run, you know, running so competitively while she's still in college and you ran in your first Olympics when you were still in college. Mm-hmm. Talk about what that was like compared to. So, you you know, you went 2008, 2012 and 2016. Are, do you feel like a completely different kind of athlete in 2016 than in that first Olympics in 2008? <sighs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, every, every Olympics, uh, it was kind of a new woman <laughs> approaching a new challenge, you know? Um, so briefly in 2008, I'm a collegian. I make my first Olympic team, which I was still kind of hedging my bets. I had gotten a summer internship cause I, I wasn't totally convinced I was gonna, <laughs> I was going to make the team and I didn't want to come home to nothing. <laughs> So, uh, so 2008, I'm a really young collegian running the steeplechase. I make the team and it was definitely young woman going to the Olympics, hoping to make the final. Um, in 2012, I was now, uh, solidly, uh, in the 1500. I, and you know, I had, I was now in my second year of focusing just on the 1500 meters, um, qualified for the team, but, but really barely qualified for the team in 2012. Like it was a real battle getting to, um, the trials and then kind of getting through those rounds in that race. And at the same time, also carrying the weight of being the defending world champion from 2011. So that kind of had its own complex set of, of challenges and pressure and excitement. And then in 2016, I'm back here in Boulder working with my college coaches. Um, I had, won the silver medal in 2013, won the diamond league championships in 2014, had that mishap in 2015. But after these three solid years, I went into 2016, just feeling like you are going to have to pry this out of my death grip to get this this medal away from me. Like I am going to do whatever it takes to get there. Uh, and it's, it's one, one moment of my career where I feel like the, my will made a material difference because I showed up at the, uh, at the Olympic games in 2016 with a really bad cold and a really bad cough. And it was really impacting my ability to, to do those last two weeks of workouts and kind of get my breath together. I I remember finishing the first round and just having this terrible coughing fit and looking around and thinking like, everybody must think like, Oh, she's, she's going to be easy to beat, <laughs> you know, yeah. cause she can't even breathe after the race is over. Um, and you know, I often say your will to win matters the days between race day. But that was that was one that was one instance in my life where I feel like I summoned 
the universe to to do what I willed on that day uh, in August of 2016 to win my bronze medal. Yeah. Oh man. Do you when you're in the race in the 15 in 2016, you get your bronze medal. Can you replay that last lap for us? What was happening? Because now I, I'm sure if I don't remember, everybody else doesn't remember. Where were you in line at the race when you're going in for the last lap? Oh, my gosh. It was so exciting and so crazy and so awesome because the race played out nearly identical to the final of 2015. Oh, wow. And so it it did feel like after handling 2015 the way that I did, I I feel like I handled it as well as a person possibly can. It's like God said, Jenny, here's your second shot. Like you wanted to know what would have happened and here's, here's a second shot. And you don't get those in sports. You know, you don't get this, the same contenders under the same circumstances to play out the same race um, over again for you. You don't get a redo in track and field and in most other sports. And so I feel really fortunate. It went out really slow. And then with a lap to go, there were some things about me tactically that I had done a little bit differently from 2015. Um, but in 2016, the Olympic final going in with a cold, I'm in ninth. I think, I think I was ninth place with 400 meters to go. And I'll never, ever, ever forget. Like, I don't remember a lot of the last part of the race, but I do remember coming around with 300 meters to go and we're on the backstretch. And I remember thinking, just go harder than you think you should. Because I remember thinking like, if you don't bridge some of the gap, your last 200 meters aren't going to matter. And what are you fighting for in the last 200 meters? If you're, if you're nowhere near the medals, you know? And so, and, and that's not exactly true. Like I always want to finish as well as I want, but like, that's what I came here for. And I, as, as it turns out, my, my fastest hundred meters of the entire race was the backstretch from 300 to 200 to go. And I made up a lot of ground. And then when the possibility of being third was in my sights, then I really had what it took the last 200 meters to make it happen. But, um, man, it was just a really, really thrilling way to, to really feel like to the last second, to the last footfall, I really earned that, that bronze medal. Cause it was, I, I had a lot of work to do the last 400 meters. Yeah. I mean, when you're, you're coming down that stretch to like grab the medal, I mean, are, are you thinking anything or are you just like, go, 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 go? Yeah. I, you know, I'm always thinking about trying to advance my position finish as strong as I possibly can. But this is really true. I never, ever, ever think about the medals until the race is over. Mm. And I, I think, I think that's a tough thing to learn late. And so you have to practice that early in your life and in your career. I think don't ever own something that you haven't earned yet. Mm. And so I just, I just have really, really conditioned myself and trained myself even in practice to say, get to the finish line first as hard as you possibly can and then sort out what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times, I mean, there's no better example of that working in my favor than t- 2017. Uh, Cause we were in London at the world championships and there's just a cluster of all of us. And I saw the, the 
totally improbable opportunity of the inside lane opening up the last hundred meters. And I took it and I just ran as hard as I could. And I remember crossing the finish line and thinking, I have no idea if I was (laughs) second or if I was fifth or like there were just bodies all around me. Uh, and, and like I said, I mean, all of my energy is just poured into being as, you know, as, fast and as strong and as great a form as I possibly can through the finish line. And then I'll take whatever the scoreboard gives me. That is so exciting. I remember that race and I remember replaying that because that's why everybody talks about how you're such a tactical racer on the track, because it's (laughs) who would think, Oh, I'm going to jump over here and also take the risk of jumping over because like, what if you got tripped up or tripped someone else up or, you know, like that's a scary move to make. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you, I would not recommend ever taking the inside (laughs) line. Like don't do that. It worked out for for me. Yes. But of all the races I've run in my career, it's worked out once, you know? (laughs) So, so I wouldn't recommend it, but, but yeah, there, there are moments where you, I, I feel like I've run the 15 so many times that there's very few scenarios that I haven't seen unfold ahead of me. And so that's one of the things that I try to encourage myself now with the amount of experience that I have, that every version of this race run I've run, or I've been a part of the field running every version of this race possible. You know, I've been in races where people fell ahead of me, where people fell behind me. I've been in races where people went out in 61 seconds. I've been in races where the pacer was good, where the pacer was bad. So I try to give myself like the permission that that is some amount of edge that I'm not going to see anything new in a race. Um, but that, that race was really kind of magical because there's this whole cluster of people, you know, running as hard as I can for the finish. It was one of the, I think, no, I know this, this is the closest finish for the, among the medals of the world championships ever in the history of the world championships. Um, and, and there were five of us really diving for the line together And, um, and I do think that my instincts are honed in a way that they could not possibly have been the first few years I was racing this event. And so that being said, I think I just could kind of see the field of play in a more mature way and take the best possible line, um, in that scenario. Cause I've just done it so many times. Did you, so when, if the five of you guys were diving for the line, did you know, like how long after you finished did you know that you actually placed you know I was it's so funny because I remember Laura Whiteman coming up and giving me a hug and she and I have become friends uh she runs for the UK she and I have become friends over the years because we've been in so many of these high level meets together um and I remember her coming over and giving me a hug and kind of congratulating her and I remember telling her I was second or I was fourth I was second or Mm -hmm. fourth I don't know I don't know and I don't know why in my brain it was like one or the other. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know why I didn't think I was third or, or, or fifth, but anyway, I remembered insisting that I wasn't sure which was with, and she's like, no, no, you meddled, you meddled. And so we stood there together and there's this really, really sweet photo that I'll just cherish my whole life of, um, me and her with our arms around one another, waiting for the score to come up on the board. And, and I'll, I'll always really love that moment with her. That was really special. Did you put, was that in your post for International Women's Day? Was that one of your pictures? I'm sure it was. Yeah. Because I really love that picture. So she competes for, she's from the UK? Yeah. Yeah. She, yep. She competes for the UK and, um, and actually she was here in Boulder for a short training stint and she and I got to have dinner together, which is really fun. Oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. Like you're like 
good friends with someone you're competing with on a world stage. Yeah, which is which is really special for me because I am probably I on on the grand scale I probably trend towards being more private. Mm, okay. Um and and it's it's not that I'm I'm not shy and I'm not a particularly introverted person, but the stakes are high with what we do, you yeah. know? And so it's I I oh my gosh, I really hope that I'm never come across as unfriendly. Sure. Um, you know, I think I'm a pretty friendly person, <laughs> but, but yeah, when the stakes are high, it's not like you're going to cozy up to every single person that you're, you're racing against. And so, uh, so my, my close relationships within the 1500 meters, they, they do exist and they're wonderful and they mean a lot to me, but they're few. And, and Laura is definitely one of those few. Hey, everybody, I want to jump in real quick and thank the New York Roadrunners for being such a great supporter of this podcast. And I want to tell you, go sign up for the New York Roadrunners Virtual Pride 5K powered by Strava. You can sign up and run it between June 22nd to June 30th. So you've got two more days to do it and it's free and people from all over the world are signing up for these New York Roadrunners virtual races. I love it. I love seeing what other people are doing and it's a really great way to connect with the greater running community. So when you sign up, there are also some really cool limited edition sunglasses you can choose to check out and wear with pride for your virtual race. So head over to nyrr.org slash virtual racing slash Lindsay to sign up for the pride race this June. And when you do it, also You'll connect to Strava, find me over there. I'm Lindsay Hine over there, and you can catch up with all the workouts and cross training that I'm doing over on Strava. All right, friends, friendly reminder, if you are enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen and leave a rating interview. It's one of the best ways this show can grow. And if you enjoyed this episode with Jenny, take a screenshot, throw it up on Instagram and on your stories and let your running friends know what you've been listening to. I appreciate each and every one of you. Let's continue this conversation with Jenny Simpson. So people listening who follow the sport and follow track and field know that you're a 1500 meter meter runner. I wonder how many people do know that you actually were originally a steeplechaser. Yes, I was a steeplechaser. (laughs) And it's funny because that felt like such a long and significant portion of my career. Uh, and now, oh my gosh, it's so weird that some people don't even know that that's how I got started. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but some, some, one of the let's run guys was like talking about how he wants you to steeplechase again. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Is that ever, would that ever even be an option? You tell me. Oh, I think I'm retired, permanently <laughs> retired from the steeplechase. I, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to put all of my effort into keeping two feet on the ground and avoiding, uh, the steeple barriers. But, um, but it gave me this incredible launch into, um, into track and field at an international level that I wouldn't have had in another event. Um, I could make teams in the steeple early in my career when I, when I was not talented enough to make teams in the 15 or in the 5k or something. And so it just afforded me this early education and this, this early exposure, um, to the sport at the very highest level. And yeah, I'm sure there's, I have a funny story. I, I, I medaled at one of the world championships and we were at dinner afterwards and all the athletes are all together. We're in, you know, this USA 
kind of camp together. We're in hotels and we were housed together. So two, Team USA is is all together. And we're sitting there and I don't know, somehow it came up that I had run for the University of Colorado. And there's this other sprinter that I get along with really well. And he's really funny. And um, and he starts saying, he's like, oh, yeah, that was back when you guys were in the Big 12. And I was in the Big 12. And uh, there was a girl on your team that was really good. She was, whatever happened to that girl? I think she ran the steeplechase. <laughs> and I'm like laughing. I'm like, is this a joke? Like, you've got to be kidding me. And everybody at the table thinks it's the funniest thing that he has no idea that I'm like, that's me. Like, I'm the same, <laughs> I'm the same person. So, uh, yeah, it's funny. The longer, the longer I'm in the 15, and I guess just the longer my career goes, uh, there's – I mean, there's young people now who have been all the way through college and are pros that, man, they they were too young when I was steeplechasing to remember. So that's, that's, that's strange. That's so funny. He had no idea it was you. Yeah. That happens more now than, than I, than I ever would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what you could do in the steeple though. Like, I just wonder, like, just based on the training you do for the 15, I mean, 3000, but yeah. you, you race a 5k every once in a while, right? I know it's not your specialty Would that would the 3000 feel so long though. Well, I, I love the 3k you do. and, um, and, and I, I ran it, uh, I, I ran a really good one in Doha last year. I ran nine or I'm sorry, eight thirty in the 3k last year, early in the season. Actually it was just, uh, few, I think about 10 days after I ran the two mile American record at, um, at Drake. And so I, I really like the 3K distance. I think I'm really good at it. I'm sad that the flat 3K is no longer an Olympic yeah. distance because um, I think I would have I think that would have been my my event. But, um, you know, what's funny. I used to be really curious and I used to really wonder, like, you know, that last race in Berlin, the last time I ever ran the steeplechase was the final of the world championships in 2009. And I PR'd by a lot. I ran 9.12, uh, reset the American record. And I know there was still a lot left in there. Um, but I have to admit, honestly, now that the world record is down to the 840s, um, it's it's no longer the curiosity for me that it used to be. You know, it, it was there was still a tiny bit of temptation there when I thought, man, I think I could go under nine minutes. I'd like to see if if, if I could. Maybe the world record is there for me. Um, but now that that's really out of reach, um, it's, it's not really a temptation anymore. Mm, yeah. And what's Courtney's record, American records like nine, is it nine flat? You know, I have to admit, I'm really ashamed of myself. I don't know exactly what the record is. I think it's, it's 901 or 902 yeah. or nine. Yeah. yeah I think you're right. Maybe 900. Anyway, it's, it's, yeah. it's there. Yeah. And so, um, and then, you know, that was the other thing that I told myself in 2009, I did not know that that would be my last steeplechase. Um, I got injured after that and in 2010 um, got through the U.S. championships. And then after that, I wasn't able to continue. So just the season. Um, so I shut down my season. And that was when um, we kind of, my coach and I at the time, Julie Benson, we, we were making some decisions about how to proceed. And training for the steeplechase had just been kind of hard on my body and in that moment of separating from the steeplechase, I gain, have gained so much in the 15. And so while every once in a while it's kind of fun to think about what might have been, I mean, I look at what I got and I think I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't trade it. So uh, maybe a world record, maybe something kind of maybe medals in the steeplechase, but 
I wouldn't trade the four medals I have in the 15 to, to risk it and find out something different. So your four medals, what is, do you have one? I mean, obviously gold in 2011, it's gold. Um, yeah. but then we have an Olympic medal too. So do you have one that's like most valuable to you just like in your heart more than anything, regardless of what place it was? You know, there's some, obviously there's something really special about each of them. Um, and quickly when I won in 2011, I look at that and I think that was the one time in my career that I'm going to medal at the world championships. And it's going to be that kind of surprise. You know, it was the first time that I ever ran the 15 for a season. It's the first time I ran the 15 at the world championships. And you don't get many surprises in sports in your career, you know, and I won the steeplechase in at NCAA as my freshman year. And that was huge. Mm. And the next closest thing to that kind of surprise is 359 at Prefontaine and then winning the gold medal in 2011. I mean, I've gotten more than my fair share of like, wow, I blew it out of the water on the day that counted the most and shocked everyone. And so that's, that's the, that part of joy in my career is really represented very much by that world championship. Um, and then 2013 is really special because I came back to see you. I was with Mark and Heather again, and we just crushed it. I mean, I, I led most of that final uh, in 2013 and, you know, wire to wire just ran really courageously. And so I'm really proud of that race. Um, 2016, I mean, who you you dream your whole career of just having a shot at being an Olympian and then to walk away with a medal. I mean, all the work that I put in doesn't guarantee that you're going to have that level of success. And so that, and especially as I described earlier, kind of some of the adversity I faced going into it, um, just made it even more special. Um, and then 2017, just personally and professionally, that was a really low, hard blue year for me. Um, and I got to the world championships and I was not in the best shape of my life. <laughs> my, I think my coaches were a little bit nervous. Um, it was the first time ever in my career. I kind of thought this is what the beginning of the end must feel like, you know, I don't love this anymore. I am, it's hard for me to get out the door for training. Um, I remember having a, a day where I, I confessed to my coaches, I think I'm here at practice because I have nowhere else to go. Like I didn't wake up and think, oh, I want to be here today. And so going through that, and then I just, I, I showed up at the world championships and I just told my coach, we fought too freaking hard <laughs> to get here and I'm going to make it count for something. And I remember her, and, and to this day, she's like, I did not know what had come over you when we finally got to London. Like you were a different person. And I just really, really believed uh, we had done the work that it took to do well. And then, you know, as we described, I mean, five of us diving at the line and I got, I got one of the medals. So they all feel really important. But the thing that I would say about the, the, the medals is that, and I've shared this before with some of the people at New Balance, when I, I wouldn't have known this until later in my career after having had all these wonderful experiences. But when other people look at my medals, it's become really clear to me that to most other people, and rightfully so to everybody else, each one of those medals represents one race. And to me, when I look at them, they represent 
a journey. You know, it's it's like the 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 race itself was just the tiniest sliver of the whole experience of getting to that starting line and what I brought to that season and that effort. And so that's one thing that has surprised me as I've as I've kind of collected these medals over the years is how much it represents to me in the in the time span that it means to me. When I look at each one, my heart goes to different parts of the year um, that were either really great or really hard getting to that point. And I very rarely actually think about the, the, the one race where I won it. Yeah. You know, I've heard you say before when you, when you show up at the start line, you have a saying that you go back to that. This is like, let your life speak. Yeah. Yeah. I love love that. that. Yeah. And when you're describing this, like you're describing how these medals mean so much more than that one moment. That's what I'm, that's what I see. Yeah, thanks. Because in whatever we pursue, I'm so lucky that I get a moment where people will look at me and see what I have to say. And that's how I feel about racing, that this is your chance. There's 365 days in a year and you might race 12, 12 of those days. And so what do you, what do you want to say on those days? And, and I tried, you know, it's easy in this moment when I'm not nervous and I'm not approaching the race to kind of think that highly of it. Um, but I, I really do try to bring that, that attitude to the race is like, all right, you've done all this work now. Now this is your chance for people to see it. This is your chance to speak. And I remember I was watching a documentary about the, um, uh, I think it was the American theater of ballet. Um, but it was this ballet troupe. And uh, one of the choreographers was saying the, the, the task of a performer is to speak clearly. And I thought, what a beautiful thing for a dancer to think is that my job as a performer is to speak clearly. And yeah, I've thought about that a lot in my career. Wow. Yeah. That's so, so good. I mean, and that's, that's a, you're, talking about a ballerina but you can talk about any career like that totally agree yeah totally agree you're making me really think into this podcast Jenny like you're (laughs) you're making me really think that Lindsay this is your job are you speaking clearly (laughs) yeah yeah and that's something I admire in people when people know exactly when they're really laser focused and they know exactly what they're trying to do like that's what I'm really interested in you know, there's people that are, there's a lot of people that are trying to do a lot of things. And that's also has its, it's, there's, that's admirable as well. But I think I'm much more the person that is, is desires to be really laser focused. And what's that one thing that you want to make right in the world. And, uh, and I'm really interested in people that are doing that. She's really laser focused on the 15. If you haven't noticed (laughs) everybody. Yeah. Are you, so you're 32, right? 32. I'm, I'm a month or two months away yet from being 33, but yes, two months left. I'm 32. Yeah. Okay. So we have a world championship year and then we have an Olympic year. Um, everybody's assuming you're probably going to do the 15 for both of those. That's, that's my plan. I I really want to stick to that event. Do you envision this being not your last Olympics? Like, do you envision going up in distance? Do you envision having a family? What is your life? Like if you had to, you seem like a planner to me. If you had to look at the next five, <laughs> six years, what do you think that you would like? Yeah. You know, 
it's it's funny because I I want to compete until my talent runs out. And that's something I've really committed to myself. I really want to see how far this talent is can go. And so, um, so I'm, I'm committed to the 15 for at least two more years, but I've, but, but that being said, um, I've also kind of had my husband and my sponsors and my family and everyone kind of commit to me that I, I get to steer the ship. Um, and, and I do want a family someday. And so I don't know exactly how that fits in and exactly what that looks like, um, but, uh, but that's definitely in my future. And so, um, yeah, 32, 33, I'll be 34 the year of the Olympic games. Um, the world championships is in Eugene in 2021. <laughs> um, there's, there's also a desire in me to see if I can be good at other things. And so, um, whether I pursue another event for another Olympic cycle or, um, go on and pursue other dreams, um, I do feel like, you know, you said, you said that I'm, I'm a planner and that's, oh my gosh, like the understatement of the podcast. (laughs) Um, but I do think that just life has so much to give. Like I have so much living to do and I don't want to plan it out so perfectly that I miss out on, on some of the surprises. Um, and, and so I, so I don't have a lot planned out beyond 2021, but that doesn't mean that running is or isn't going to be a, a focus of it. I just am refusing to, to plan beyond that because I think life deserves a chance to unfold a little bit. Well, I think that's really smart. I'm the opposite of a planner. I'm like this episode that we're recording today will be my episode that goes out this Friday. So that's the kind of planner I am. Um, Awesome. Yeah. But and also why I I have four kids in six years, like because there was no planning involved in that. Like that's just kind of how my life is. I Um, love it. So (laughs) as someone like that, I it like makes my unplanner heart happy to hear someone say that. Like, I'm just going to like let life happen. Cause I think far too often people kind of over plan and they don't let yeah. life happen. Um, so two things I'm hearing from that though. One is that the mara like we might see a 36, 37 year old Jenny Simpson competing in the marathon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because to me that says, you, I mean, if your talent doesn't run out and the 1500s done, I'm just going to be hopeful that we're going to be cheering for you running a marathon someday. Is that completely off the table? The hope and the future and possible failure of that idea <laughs> all lies in the fact that I watch my husband wake up in the morning and prepare and plan for a marathon. And so I have both sides of me that says, wow, what an incredible thing. And I definitely can do that. Um, I also have a little bit, um, of, um, you know, anything you can do, I can do better. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, which he's very well aware of. Uh, so there's a little bit of intrigue there. And then I also have the side of like, holy crap, you averaged over a hundred miles a week for 13 weeks. You're out doing repeat miles with a minute rest. Like that does not sound fun to me. Like my work day is over in an hour and his <laughs> is like in the, in the middle of his run, you know? So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I definitely swing back and forth between those two realities of, of being motivated. And then also thinking like, 
the hardest, hardest, hardest day of my year is four minutes long. You know what I mean? (laughs) And like, (laughs) what, what am I thinking taking on something that's over two hours? But, um, but never say never. I mean, I, I see him train for it. I know what it would take, uh, to a degree as an observer, as a close observer. Um, and, and so it's, it's not that it hasn't crossed my mind. Oh, you know, it's interesting too, though, because he's a two, he's ran a two eighteen. Like you guys could be the best of training partners. We do actually run a decent amount together already. Um, we do a lot of long runs together and, um, he, he runs a little before and then does my long run with me and then continues. Oh, sure. Uh, so in that way we, we do long runs together, but, um, yeah, he, it, it's funny because, okay, so he started out and he was running like two thirties and then he was running two twenties and he had a couple of races in the two twenties. And it was kind of one of those things of like, our PRs in college were really similar. And then he started doing a lot more mileage and he got a little bit better at the longer stuff. And I always thought like, Oh, we're so similarly matched. Whatever he can do, I can do. When he ran 21841, yeah. I was like, sweetheart, you are crowned the team Simpson marathon champ forever. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that is not going to be in my wheelhouse. Uh, especially, especially in my late thirties. Yeah. That's incredible though. That's so cool. But does can he hang with you for like a speed session? He tries to play off to people that it's hard for him. But when we get on the track, he's very, very proud to act like it's nothing. So <laughs> he he can definitely hang with me. I It would be funny and interesting to see. I mean, especially for not being a professional athlete, he has to have some of the most impressive, like, um, range of racing times because most years he runs at least one marathon, sometimes two, and he also races the Fifth Avenue Mile. And there's this big household um, competition at the fifth Avenue mile because he and I run in different heats. Um, but I'm closing the gap on him. I'm getting closer to his time. Yeah. And so he's, he's run, I think, uh, four eleven in, in the mile at fifth Ave and, and in a year where he ran low two twenties, I mean, that's really, that's really good for a guy that works 40 hours a week and is following me all around the world, you know? Um, so yeah, he's got to have, uh, especially for being a, a non-pro, he's got to have one of the best combos of, and, and it's funny too, because often in a year, that's the only two distances he races is the, the marathon and the mile. And I'm like, you're such, you're such a freak, but he, but he does all that training with me in the summer because, you know, if I go to Europe and, and don't have training partners, he'll jump in with me and, and, and he does a lot of the sessions with me. Um, and I love punishing him. Oh, poor Jason, (laughs) especially if he's coming off of, you know, a marathon block and he's kind of easing himself back into it. He'll jump in and do some two hundreds or some three hundreds with me. Um, and I'm, I'm awful to him. So, uh, we have a lot of fun with that, but, um, but yeah, he's really impressive with his mile and and marathon races. Does he get more nervous for a mile or a marathon or does he say which hurts, hurts worse? Oh my gosh. No contest. I mean, the mile is a joke to him compared okay. to, <laughs> to compared to so the marathon. Short. Yeah. It's so short, but it's so hard. It's like, it just burns so bad. It is. It is so hard. And I also think in a weird way it, okay. So the marathon is definitely harder. There's no question about that, especially, especially for him. Cause he's, you know, invested all this time and training into it, but there's something nerve wracking about the 15 or I, I guess about the fifth Avenue mile, because you have to pour all of that effort into such a short span mm-hmm. of time and you know, it's going to hurt. Like, you know, it's going to be one minute and in the marath- 
Yeah. And the marathon, you, when you're on the starting line, you know, you're kind of, and I'm, I'm repeating him, you know, I don't really know this, but you know, you're an hour away from it, Uh an hour or more away from it being miserable. And so, you know, you're standing on the starting line and according to him, you're not the same kind of nervous as you are for the mile in the mile. It's like, this is going to be really hard. Like, you know, 30 seconds in. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I've done both and I, um, not at that level, but I agree. Like, the, the mile is hard basically from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, Jenny. Well, I, let's go ahead and do end a podcast and then we're going to keep you on for a couple more minutes for our Patreon supporters. What is one thing professionally or personally that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Oh man. The only problem with your question is I can't, I can't say just one. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. Um, oh man, professionally, I kind of bucket list things. I'd, I'd, I'd like to pace a high level race because I've had so many races with bad pacers (laughs) that I'd love to like see what it's like and show that it can be done well. Um, so I'd love to pace a high level race. I'd love to run on a relay team. Um, I'd love I mean, the, the big, big goal is I'd love to win again. I, I really want the Olympic games is coming, the world championships, you know, I got to win at that level once and I'd love to win one more time, um, before my career is up. Um, I'd love to, con- you know, I really want to continue the work that I'm doing with kids with the rising New York Roadrunners um, and learn more about how to impact their lives there. Um, I'd love to live abroad. I, learned French to some degree when I was in college and I'd love to study that again and get better. Um, I'd like to start a business, see if I'd be good at, at starting something and, and do something that can, I don't know what it would be, but you know, starting a business and something that would, uh, be a service to people or make the world a better place. Um, yeah, I'd like to do a lot of things. I have a lot of things in mind. She has a big bucket list. I do. I do. I should start writing some of these down so I don't forget. We were just, I was just doing that at my house with my oldest son. I said, we need to write down our summer bucket list so that we can at least start checking some things off. Yeah. I love that. What's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Um, I'm really, really proud of how much I've learned about myself. Uh, The art of motorcycle maintenance in that book the author says, when you're working on the bike, you're working on yourself. And that's how I feel about running is that along the way I've learned so much about myself. Um, but I had a really, like, I had like an epiphany years after it happened. Um, after I lost my shoe in 2015 and I felt like, what am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to learn from this? And I had this epiphany years later where I thought, I don't know that I'm supposed to learn anything about myself, but I think a lot of people learn something about me. And so in a weird way, I would say, I think that's what I'm, I'm, that's the accomplishment I'm most proud of that even in my lowest moments, I think other people saw something good in me. Who is someone fun, motivating or inspiring? You'd like to have coffee, cocktail or tea with, and what beverage do you choose? Okay. This is going to seem really strange, but <laughs> I have heard interviews and, and anyone that loves kids or loves being around kids, ugh, you got to listen to interviews of RL Stein. 
the author of Goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is so great. He is so great. He's funny. He loves kids. He gets kids. Um, and I've with this work I've been doing with the Rise of New York Roadrunners and work that I've done beyond that. I, I when I was in college and beyond, I worked with a, a group of refugee kids, and um, I've always really been drawn to kids as they're you know discovering sports and the world and they're in school and they are learning how to manage friendships and stuff. And speaking of people being laser focused, like this guy knows his audience, like kids in, in, in elementary school and he just knows what they like and he gets them. And I think, man, so few adults like understand an eight year old, you know? And so I feel like there's a lot for me to learn from him. So if I could have a cup of coffee with RL Stein, I would like, totally I, I i would be hard for me to let let him go that would be su- such a fun fun coffee it, he's the writer of like the goosebumps series right yeah which is funny because i never read the goosebumps when i was a kid i was always too um, scared me too me too <laughs> i was too but as an adult i've listened to some of his interviews and one of the things that first of all he's just really compelling like you have to listen to you just Who google him or something him what podcast has he been on so i think the first time i ever heard him was uh on fresh air with terry gross okay and i thought like oh i never listened to goosebumps it was like one of those where i was probably listening to another podcast and it rolled over to yeah. the one with rl stein like i probably yeah. would have never clicked on it totally um but but he's so funny and Believe it or not, he started out writing joke books. Really? Like he's, yeah. And then he went and, and here's the thing that I love about him. He is not confused or distracted in what his mission is. Mm. His mission is to get kids to read. And I love that he'll say, and he's said this in, in interviews, he's not trying to teach the kids lessons in his books. And, and people have criticized him before that he doesn't have like a moral at the end of the story. But he says, I'm not trying to teach kids how to be better kids in the world. I'm just trying to get kids to read. And to me, that's like such a a great example of somebody that knows exactly what their mission is. And it's important for kids to learn character and learn morals and stuff like that. But his, his mission is laser focused on how can I get this kid to turn the next page and keep reading. Um, and, and I really love that about him that he, he really gets what he's doing. Yes. Because obviously, like, as a parent, you want your kids to read a book that has a good moral to the story. But first, you want your kids to read. You want them to read. Yeah. And I'll never forget, he said once, and I thought this is so good. He said, adults have all kinds of trash to read. Sure. Like, kids deserve that, too, you know? (laughs) Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, why do kids always have to be, like, learning something important every time they pick up a book? Like, books should, should... it's okay. It should be okay for them to just be entertaining. And, and that's really his aim. And I, I think that's really admirable. I mean, as an adult, I'm a reader. I love to read, but I love to have one book going that's for education or for some learning process. And I love to have one book going that is just for pure escape. Yes. And it's so fun to dive into another world and feel like you're getting a little bit of a vacation from the four walls you're stuck in, you know? And that's what reading can do. And it's so funny when I heard R.L. Stein explain that about kids having books just for entertainment. I'm like, it's so obvious. Why, why do we, you know, pound a lesson down their throat every single time? You know, why can't some things just be fun? And 
in a way that perfectly translates to what we're trying to do, right? With, with sports and with running, like obviously there's life lessons to be learned in it, but at some level it should just be fun. You know, kids should be able to go out and play on the playground or go into a sports team and maybe as adults, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as this is something I'm learning, you know, maybe we sometimes put too much emphasis on what they're supposed to be learning and, and it would be okay to, to loosen the reins a little bit and say, you know what, it's totally fine for this to just be for fun. That is a message, man. That is so good. I, um, and I was just talking uh, my last interview, actually, actually the one before the last one, Katie Arnold, she's an ultra runner. We were just talking about the, this in a way about kids and sports and how, you know, kids are just like so overscheduled and, and everything is yeah. so competitive and like you could, this exact message goes straight into that topic as well. You know, I totally agree. Totally agree. Okay. So on that note though, what's the best, most recent book you've read? Oh yeah. What was the most? Okay. So I, I most recently when I was over in uh, Rome and Rabat, I was on like the, the learning, uh, book. Um, I read, uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I read a book called, um, it's by Chris Hadfield. He's an astronaut, a Canadian astronaut. And he wrote a book called an astronaut's guide to life on earth. And it's, first of all, I have this real fascination with space. Um, I, I grew up in Florida and watched the space shuttle program throughout my childhood. And so I have this real like aff affection for the space program. Uh, and that book is really good. Like I really learned a lot. I think there's a lot about his experiences that are really applicable to things that we, we just face in, in any pursuit that is difficult. Um, but then it also is sprinkled in with these wonderful um, ideas of what it, what it's like to live up in space. And so that's also really interesting. Um, and so it was, so it was an easy read in that way. Um, but I, but, you know, Arl Stein, Chris Hadfield, you know, writer for kids, astronauts, like it's so interesting to learn from people that are really good at what they do and know exactly what they're trying to do. And I think when somebody's at laser focus, it's really easy for me to see my own job inside of what they're doing and really apply it to my own life. So that was a really good book. What is a favorite nonprofit you like to support? So my husband and I support a number of nonprofits, but obviously uh, in, in physical effort, I uh, and financially support um, the rising New York Roadrunners and all the things the Roadrunners are doing. Um, they've, they supported me and my running long before I ever even really knew the impact that they have in the running world and with kids. So that's, that's one of our largest priorities, but there's also um, a local organization called EFA. It's emergency family assistance association here in Boulder. Um, and they really try to identify those families that are right on the brink of homelessness and really catch them and help them um, keep them kind of stable, try to stabilize their life. Um, cause once you fall into homelessness, it's really difficult, really, really difficult, um, to, to escape that. Um, and then we've worked with, uh, these four refugee families here in our local area for years. I started, I think we brought our first family over in 2007 or 2008. Um, and so I've known some of these kids for most of their lives. Uh, and we just had two of our girls graduate from high school this year. So, um, so yeah, so those are a couple of the things that we're a part of. How did you get involved with the refugee families? Is there a, a refugee center where you live and you just got involved that way? How, what did that look like? 
Yeah, there's an ecumenical center in Denver um, that then takes applications to place families in different places. And so there was a small group at our church that was going to put together um, uh, kind of a committee of people to, to set up you know, a house and the resources and so forth to apply to have a family placed here. Um, and I just, I was a college student. I was looking for something to be a part of. And it's so funny. I volunteered thinking, oh, I'll do this for, you know, a, a semester and just kind of get a life experience. And it's like so many things in life, you know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you go in for one reason and then the impact that these relationships have on your life. It's like, this is going to be part of my life now, you know? And, and so, um, even when I left, oh, I have the sweetest story. I left for three years while I was living in Colorado Springs, um, and training at the Air Force Academy. And when I came back, I remember the first weekend we were here in Boulder, we were back in Boulder. My husband and I um, went back to my old church and the first people that, that saw us and, and welcomed us and hugged us, um, was a refugee family that I had worked with years ago. All the little kids came up. They remembered my name. They were so excited to see us three years later, you know? And so uh, how can you not just have a heart for them? So, um, yeah, so we've, we've been a part of their lives for a long time. Do you still go to that church? I do. I do. It's Cornerstone. It's here in Boulder. Um, and it's just a wonderful um, community of people, just totally down to earth, wonderful people. And the reason I first went there, oh gosh, back in 2005, was because I saw the sign out at the front of the church and it said, I'll, it's so many years ago and I'll never forget this. It said, this is a place where you can be fully known and fully loved. Mm. And I thought, that is so good. Like, that's so good. I don't care what kind of place. If that's, if that's your goal, like, I want to be a part of that. That is so good. Yeah. Whoever that marketing person was that put that, those letters on that board, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And they, they, this is a community of people that really stand by and live that out every day. And, so um, and good. so it's, it's been a wonderful place to feel like we belong. Yeah. That's so good. And when your husband, when you guys started dating and got married, is this a Christian church and were you guys already both walking in your faith? What did that look like? Yeah, it's a Christian church and we have similar stories that we were um, born in Christian households. We went to church and went to youth groups, um, you know, growing up. But I do think there's this really important time in your life where you go to college and now your, your time is yours and how you spend your time is yours. And whether you choose to kind of continue to choose faith and choose church and choose, um, that kind of social setting. Um, it's not the exclusive part of our, our, or that's not exclusively what our experience is. You know, we have so many, um, different arenas where we, where we try to have friendships and have relationships. Um, but I think college is just a really important time where you take ownership of whether this faith is really real to you. Um, and we both really had um, meaningful times in our life to really make that decision. So then by the time we met and uh, Jason was visiting Cornerstone, we both really um, had that conviction and really owned our faith on our own um, and fortunately found each other there. Yeah. When I said that about the marketing, I didn't mean that in a negative way, by the way. I just... I was just oh. thinking like, I, w I was thinking after I said, I was like, that probably c came off a of snarky. But what I meant was like, they were telling you how they, 
wanted to live and how they were living out. And like, that really pulled you in. Like they said the right things. And, um, yeah, don't apologize. No, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's like we said earlier, while we were talking about speaking clearly, how can you take a heart that you have for something and articulate that you can't always articulate it. You know, even when I talk about my, my heart for kids, like, I don't know exactly how to narrow that down to a sentence, you know, and when people, but then the converse is when people do articulate something really well, oh man, it's so memorable. Right. And, and it really, it can really stop you in your tracks. And that phrase to be fully known and fully loved. I mean, when there's a lot of churches out there that are fighting against sinners, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like that is a beautiful message. Like I want to be part of a church that says you can be fully known here and you will be fully loved. Yeah. I am. If people have been listening to this podcast for a long time, they know that I, faith is something I talk about a lot and it's something I struggle with a lot. And, um, I really understood what you were saying when you were like, you grow up in this certain way and then you are kind of like leash, you're like let out, on your own to figure it out and decide. And you have to realize like, Oh, I'm at this point in my life now where like, I don't have to do things the way I was taught. And that's not what I have to believe. And I don't know it's, it's a weird adulthood is a weird time to figure still be. It's weird for me to still be figuring these things out in my mid thirties as a mother myself, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was just, I was just thinking on my run this morning. (laughs) It's so not that this has to be significant to anyone other than me, but I was thinking on my run this morning, I keep relearning the same lessons over and over and over. And that's just, I think part of our human experience. And so when you're saying like, you know, you're wrestling with things or you're struggling with things or you, you like, I, I get it. Like, I get it. There are times where I feel like I have it figured out. And then the next day I kind of start from the beginning again. And there are times where I have some real victory in, in, in kind of changing the way that I'm behaving or changing the way that I'm judging other people's way of life. And then in the next moment I'm failing at it. So I feel like that is like part of, part of the joy I have in my thirties is that I'm not I like earlier I thought, oh, I'm going to mature and grow and figure it out. And I think in my 30s, I'm realizing like, no, 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 this is just a constant like over and over relearning and relearning and relearning. And yes, you get better along the way, but I don't know that we're ever going to like really figure it out. (laughs) And that is the piece that I've been looking for for so long. Like, I'm never going to fully know all the answers and that's just how it has to be. And you can, you can have doubt and still believe things. I, I, yes, yes. And, and there's things too that like you get taught by wonderful, wonderful, well-meaning people that are wrong Yeah. and you got to figure it out on your own, you know? (laughs) And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a process and who knows 20 years ago, when you were led in one direction, if you were to meet that same person 20 years later now, they might agree. They might say, yeah, it was totally wrong. So, you know, it's, it's, and that's, that's part of the things, you know, just going down another rabbit hole. I mean, you look at the, the world of politics today and I just think like people should be allowed to mature and change and learn a new way and be accepted a new way, you know, holding people accountable for things 
um, and, and certain uh, views so long ago, it's not always fair. You know, it's not always a window into what their heart is today. And so that's what I try to remember um, just, you know, as anyway, it's a, that's, how long is this podcast supposed to be? I know. No, but I think about that too. I'm like, I sure hope I'm different than I was 10 years ago. I'm sure, oh, I sure hope yeah. I've grown. Yeah. Doesn't that make you like kind of shudder when you think about like all that our kids are going to have to face with their social media being like available forever? Right. Like the things that they were doing when they were 15, when they're looking back at when they're 25 yes. and then even when they're 35. Yeah. So have you heard of this podcast called Mortified? No. So there's this podcast where, where people read their journals from when they were younger, oh, gosh. like their diaries and journals. Oh my gosh. My sister and I, we dug up a bunch of my old diaries. Oh my gosh. I was crying. I was laughing so hard <laughs> and they're so embarrassing. And I think like that is so fun and funny because it's like in a diary in my closet in right. my home. But for our kids, that's going to be their feed on the internet forever for everyone to see I, and I just think like oh no don't do it don't do it well I know because even for us I'm a little bit older than you but we had like AOL instant messenger and you would put up an away message yeah I don't know if you did you have that oh yeah okay. oh yeah I had aim okay you're like I think you're like three years younger than me so I we had that and we and and you would put up like sad sad song lyrics like if you broke up with someone <laughs> but like we don't have archives of that anymore. Thank God. Right? Like <laughs> when when the news came out that MySpace lost like ten years of people's stuff, I thought they should be rejoicing. <laughs> people are probably so happy right now. Like MySpace, there's nothing left on MySpace that anyone wants to remember. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. Okay, anyway. Jenny, what is the one message you want to send to the world? So you sent this to me and I thought, man, at different times in my life and certainly <laughs> even different times in the day, I would probably have a different answer. Sure. Um, but, but this is, this is true. This is something that I've been really working on with the Roadrunners specifically as we're doing this work with kids. The, the message that I've really been hammering with our team there is you belong. I really think that is the message that I want to work on saying better in my life. Um, I think with so much going on around the world, but more importantly, just internally inside of every single person, um, I really want people when they cross my path to feel like they belonged. That really aligns with the message on your church too. Yeah, totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody, Jenny, Jenny, this has been so long. Are you sure you're okay for the Patreon questions? <laughs> yes, yeah, right. I'm sure. All right, Jenny's going to stay on for a few extra minutes for our Patreon supporters. You guys can go to patreon.com slash lindsayhine to find that. Thank you so much, Jenny, for sharing your story with everybody here on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, friends, thanks so much for listening today. Thank you, Jenny, for coming on the show. Loved getting to know you and talking with you. I'm so honored that I get to have these kind of conversations. You guys can follow Jenny on social media. She's track Jenny over on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter at lindsayhine and you can find me on Facebook. It's all have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this conversation with Jenny, head over to patreon.com slash lindsayhine for more continued conversation with her. 
Don't forget to check out The Three Day. Join the fight against breast cancer. Go to the3day.org to check that out. It's coming to you in seven cities this fall. And get signed up for the New York Roadrunners virtual pride race. Go to nyrr.org slash virtual racing slash Lindsay to get signed up. Friends, have a really great Friday. Have a great rest of the weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.